We'll start, as always, with prayer. Almighty God, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile the world to yourself. We praise you and bless you for those whom you have sent in the power of the Spirit to preach the gospel to all nations. We thank you that in all parts of the earth, a community of love has been gathered together by their prayers and labors, and that in every place your servants call upon your name. For the kingdom and the power are yours, forever and ever. Amen. Let's see if I can get this situated. There we go. Last week, uh, we looked at the false teacher's doctrine and the fruit of that doctrine that was, that was borne out through the church. And one of the things that we focused on particularly was their contentiousness. Because in that contentiousness, it bred division within the church, which I took back to Genesis 3 and said, this is Satan's MO from the beginning, right? They were playing into his strategy by being contentious and arguing and dividing. And, and then we paused and said, that same contentiousness is in each one of us. And it feeds off our unbelief, our insecurity, and our anger. St. Paul gives us an antidote for not just that contentiousness, but all the things uh, that that are troublesome to us, all of our sinful habits and thoughts and deeds and words. And that antidote is the proclamation of the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel is medicine, not just for the false teachers, but it is, it is medicine for Christians. We continually come back to the gospel. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to spend our time this week and, and next week to a degree, but mostly this week, looking at that gospel that Paul is proclaiming and that he is calling Timothy to proclaim as well. And we're going to do it with this outline. Uh, we're going to look at it through, look at the gospel through uh, being God's plan of redemption for the whole world. Then we're going to look at the rela relationship between the gospel and good works. And finally, the relationship between the gospel and the church. Our passages today are going to be 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. Uh, then we're going to jump into Titus and do a little bit of a chunk of Titus 2, 11 through 3, 8. So we begin with 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 16. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these instructions so that if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So most scholars who work with the pastoral epistles, including Bill Mounts and, and, and others, consider this text to be the centerpiece of 1 Timothy. 
It, it is central to Paul's argument uh, throughout the book. But David Verner, uh, in uh, a writing that he did, I, th I think it was uh, a while, I don't remember, it's not important. David Verner, um, in a writing that he wrote at some point, uh, said that it is actually that all three of the pastoral epistles are united around this passage. It is the central argument that Paul makes throughout the pastoral epistles. And so its placement, almost literally at the center of 1 Timothy, is not a coincidence. It's, it's there to show us how what Paul teaches in this passage speaks to all that he has said before and all that he is to say in 1 Timothy. What we find here is the central teaching and the central theology of the pastoral epistles. So just by way of summary, what is this passage saying? Well, one, we get St. Paul's reason for writing. Two, we have statements regarding the church and, and some of which dealing with the nature of the church itself. And then three, he goes into what he calls the mystery of godliness. And in order to explain the mystery of godliness, he, he quotes from a creed. It, it may also have been a hymn, but it's, um, uh, it's a creedal hymn. We'll just go with that. But something that the early church would have known uh, to some degree or another. So that's kind of the shape of the text. We'll look first at the, the mystery of godliness, because that is sort of the anchor of the text. Um, in order to make sense of that, though, we have to look at Paul's use of, of the language of mystery and epiphany. And it's something that he actually does quite often. He, he uses this language throughout his epistles. So uh, just... For example, in verse 16 itself, the mystery of godliness, he was revealed. So back to back, we, are, we have that language. And it's in, when I say epiphany, it's this language of revealing or seeing or appearing. It also appears in Romans 16, uh, verses 25 through 27, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1 and verse 7, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, Colossians 1, 25 through 27, Colossians 2, verses 2 through 3, Colossians 4, verse 3, Ephesians 1, verse 9, 3, verses 2 through 6, 5, 31 through 32, and Ephesians 6, 19. These slides will be available if you want those list of verses later. He, he really likes this idea. He, he leans into it a lot. And so we're not going to look at all those passages. We are going to look at three of them because it will give us an idea of, of what he means when he talks about mystery and the revelation or appearing of it. So the first one that we'll look at is Romans 16, 25 through 27 which says, To him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, 
according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the Gentiles, all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. This is part of a doxology. And so it continues to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So we see, see the pairing of revelation with the mystery, with the proclamation of the gospel. It was once kept secret, now disclosed through the prophetic writings and so forth. These Keep all these in mind as, as we go through the next two texts. We'll see a pattern emerge. So second, we'll look at Colossians 1, 25 through 27. I, Paul, became a minister to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but revealed to the saints. To them, God, to the saints, God chose to make known the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then with Ephesians, three, uh, chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. Assuming that you have heard how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed by his holy apostles in prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So did you, did you notice a pattern that comes up? In, in view of the whole canon, we can summarize it like this. The mystery kept hidden for a time, but now revealed, is God's answer to the problem of the fall. How will God restore the relationship between himself, holy and just, and mankind, rebellious and sinful? As a related to that, how will God restore the, good, the fullness of the goodness of his creation. Those, those two things are connected. For example, in Romans 8, creation groans under the expectation of release, that it was put into bondage, not of its own will, but in the sinfulness of human beings. And so, how is God going to, to do these things? And the answer to both is through the person and work of Jesus Christ, revealed through his earthly ministry and the proclamation of the gospel, beginning with the apostles and handed down from generation to generation after that. So that's kind of in summary. As, as um, God works to restore his relationship with sinful human beings, that, that is the central idea to this plan of the restoration of all things. Now, 
I think I'll tie that together a little bit more a little later, so I'll hold off on saying more on that. But because one thing I, I also want to bring to mind from this use of the language of mystery and revelation, did you notice how often it mentions the Gentiles, non-Jewish believers? This is actually a big part of the mystery that was revealed because for centuries, Israel believed that the sign of God's coming, um, I have this, yeah, that the sign of God's coming to restore all things through the Messiah was that there would be a mass conversion of Gentiles to the Jewish faith. And so the pagan would join Israel through circumcision and then following the law of Moses. And this was to be a sign that God was soon to restore all things to how they were meant to be. The mystery, which was revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of the apostles, however, was that both Jew and Gentile would be united together by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ through repentance and being baptized into the covenantal community of God. And so uh, Pastor Nick spoke on some, the Pharisees' use of tradition and how Jesus came, comes in and, and kind of blows all that away. Those were the type of laws, man-made or otherwise, that they expected Gentiles to come in through circumcision to follow. And that gets back to what we talked about last week with the misuse of the law by um, requiring uh, believers who were already part of the family of God to not just follow the law as it was in the Bible, but then on top of that, they piled man-made traditions on top of it, such as extreme fasting, abstinence from, or forbid, forbidding to marry, and things like that. No, Paul says, here, here's the revelation of the mystery. That's not how this works. It works actually the same way that it did for Abraham, which is that it is through faith. We are justified by God's grace through faith, and it's through the, uh, our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ that the two, Jew and Gentile, become one people of God, united in Christ. So, with all that as background to what Paul means by mystery, let's go back to our actual text. <laughs> In 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul spoke of the mystery of godliness. He then gives the content of that mystery through this creed that he quotes. He, Christ, was revealed in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. We're going to look at this kind of apart. At, you can kind of see that it's set off here as two different stanzas. Uh, I'll take a stanza at a time. So the first stanza says, He, Christ, was revealed in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit and seen by angels. What 
What's interesting about this is that it bookends the earthly ministry of Christ. Well, in the earthly ministry of Christ, both with his incarnation, Christ was revealed in the flesh, and his resurrection. He was vindicated by the Spirit. St. Paul's theology of, of Jesus' resurrection by, as a vindication is explicitly made in Romans 1 4. Or 1, yeah, I think it's 1 4. Romans 1. Um, and this has implications that go all throughout, especially the first half of the book of uh, Letter to the Romans, but um, all throughout Romans. Anyways, I'll, I'll leave that up to someone smarter than me with Dr. Nicholson, and he can correct me where I'm wrong. Um, but we have these bookends, the incarnation and the resurrection. And what this creed is doing is by giving these bookends, it, it calls to mind everything that comes between them. And so what we have here is an abbreviated version, version of the birth of Christ, his death on the cross, and his being vindicated in the resurrection. In the second stanza, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory, we have in the last line a reference to the ascension of Christ. Now, the ascension of Christ is, in a sense, his victory march over Satan, sin, and death. And at the end of this victory march, he is then enthroned at the right hand of God as the true king over all of creation. It is from this heavenly throne that Christ is said to hold all things together, Colossians 1. Right? He is orchestrating all of history towards its intended end, which is the restoration of all things. This restoration, this, this final kingdom, the new heavens and the earth, new earth, um, it, it's not just for the future. It manifests in the future, but it leaks into the present. How does it do that? Through the proclamation of the gospel and its effectiveness at turning the enemies of Christ into his brothers and sisters as we put our faith and trust in the work that he did in our place. Our salvation is a foretaste of that future kingdom, of that new heavens and new earth. It comes into the present through our faith. We see this in lines three and four. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. Now, I, I've wondered why this order. We have the incarnation, the, the resurrection, and then what seems to be a summary of, say, the book of Acts, where he's proclaimed on through the world um, and believed. And then we come back to the, the ascension. Um, and this is speculation, but... Um, by sandwiching it in this way, I, I think maybe it is a picture of how our present lives in Christ is a foretaste of the kingdom. Pure speculation. You can, you can take that or leave it. But um, 
the important thing to take away here is that the content of the mystery itself is the revelation of God's plan through the revelation of God in Christ himself. That is that through his uh, sinless life, death, and resurrection, he has made a salvation available. And so, with that, 1 Timothy 3.16 then is the, our first look at the centrality of the gospel in Paul's theology and the pastoral epistles. The mystery is personified in Christ himself, who through his person and earthly ministry reveals God's plan for redeeming the entirety of our good creation, which suffers the effects of our rebellion. And here, here's, how do, we, how do we tie that together? Our redemption as human beings is the pinnacle of this plan in the same way that the creation of human beings is the pinnacle of all the creative acts of Genesis 1. Creation was made to be a place that is fit for human beings. And when we fell, we brought all of creation down with us. God cares about creation in this plan of redemption so that when he does restore us finally in our resurrected bodies, creation will be a place fit for us once again. So the drive of this redemptive plan is the salvation and the redemption of human beings such that we will have a place forever to live out a life that God has intended for us from the beginning. So the pinnacle of this redemptive plan is the redemption of human beings in the same way that the pinnacle of creation was the creation of human beings. So that is God's plan for redemption, which is revealed, which is a mystery hidden from generations revealed now in the person and work of Christ. Our redemption, our salvation in the present is the pinnacle of that plan and a way that God brings the future kingdom into the present. Verses 14 and 15 of 1 Timothy also speaks to what is the relationship between the gospel, that proclamation, and our good works. So if we, if we jump back up and read 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 again, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these instructions to you so that if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Paul's opening charge to Timothy in, in chapter 1, verse 3, was that he would rebuke false doctrine and teach sound doctrine. He then reiterates that same charge in chapter 1, verse 18. And again, at the end of the epistle, in uh, chapter 6, verse 20. Here, however, he phrases it in a much different way. Know and teach how one ought to behave in the household of God. So what's the relationship here? Well, I mentioned in the first week that uh, the interesting thing about the pastorals is that St. Paul has a focus not on 
necessarily critiquing the doctrine itself of the false teachers because that's a shared thing that, they, that Paul, Timothy, and Titus knew about, but also a critique, a focus on critiquing the behaviors and the fruit of that sound doctrine. And so this passage is one of the first places where we kind of see that hint of Paul's focus in dealing with the fruit of the false teaching. So let's look then at that relationship between gospel and good works. We'll start here in 1 Timothy and then uh, we'll finish with Titus 2, 11 through 3, 8. Because it can be kind of confusing if you're making your way through the passage. I thought we were talking about the gospel and sound doctrine. Now all of a sudden we're talking about how we ought to behave in the church of God. So, as we just said, the creed in verse 16 is introduced with a phrase, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. And we looked at the background to what mystery is and kind of saw how the creed itself gives us the content of that mystery, the, the appearing of Christ in his earthly ministry, sinless life, which makes, available, uh, makes salvation available to us. But what is godliness? Godliness in the pastoral epistles is really just the whole of Christianity. Sound doctrine, but also worship and ethics. It's, it's the whole system. And in order to understand what Paul means by the mystery of godliness and the relationship between the mystery and godliness, we have to work with this little word of. And of is a preposition of relationship. I'm going to skip the argumentation for this. It's in the supplemental material. Of is a, is a preposition of source here. And that's important to get that relationship because um, what it's saying is that the gospel, the, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ that makes the kingdom available to us sinful human beings is the source of true godliness. The NIV 2011 actually translates uh, this in a way that really brings out this relationship. The mystery from which true godliness springs is great. And so this is all in contrast to the false teachers, right? Because they made godliness the source of salvation. Paul teaches that our salvation is through Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is where any, any good works flow from. It is our salvation, empowered by the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, that is the source of true godliness. We see this in Titus 2, 11 through 14, explicitly. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." 
Um, can we just acknowledge that that's a crazy sentence, by the way? Like, it just, it just, that's Paul. He just goes and goes and goes. In fact, he goes to the point where it's kind of easy to lose the main idea. Here's the main idea. The grace of God appeared. That's the main idea of this sentence. Uh, one, note the language of epiphany. It appeared. It was revealed. But two, everything else, everything else that follows in this passage hinges on the grace of God appearing. So if we look at the grace of God has appeared and the rest of this is sort of the result of the appearing of the, of the appearing of God's grace. What are those results? First, salvation is made available to all. And the way that we understand that is exactly what we've been seeing in this language of mystery and epiphany. It's that it is through putting our faith in Christ that both Jew and Gentile are brought into the people of God. So, Salvation is made available to all, Jews and Gentiles. Earlier in the, in, in the verse, it, it also runs, or in the chapter, it goes through categories of people in the church by age. So that also kind of colors what we, what we mean by all, um, old folk and young folk. But um, the basic thrust of this has been that uh, the the. Gentiles are now included through Christ in the same way as Jewish believers were. And the thing that we have to keep in mind here is, is, where, is where, where is Timothy located? He's, he's ministering in Ephesus. What's, if you read the letter to the Ephesians, what's one of the big deals there? They're not getting along so well. There's a wall of hostility that the gospel is supposed to tear down that they are keeping up. And that hostility is between Jewish and Gentile believers. And so Paul, in writing to Timothy, leans into that mystery language to say the gospel destroys any division like that. We all come to Christ in the same way, and it is through faith in his life and trust in his death to cover our sins. So salvation is made available to all. The second thing that it does, and the order here is important, is that it is the grace of God which trains us in renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions and also trains us to live godly lives. God's grace saves us, full stop. Full stop. It is all of God's grace. And then that very same grace enables and provides our faith. Our faith itself is a gift of God and trains us to renounce ungodliness and to live godly lives. That training is still God's grace working through us. In fact, the word train uh, primarily 
is used in Scripture in the way that we, uh, it talks about the training up of our children in the faith. We could, we could paraphrase this. God's grace saves us and then catechizes us. The entirety of the Christian life is all of God's grace. From our conversion to the faith that produces to the fruit that is produced in us and the good works that God manifests through us. All of God's grace. All of God's grace. As we look to the... That was just mostly focusing on verses um, 11 and 12, I think. Uh, As we look to verses 13 and 14 we're going to notice some parallels. So in verse 11, well, let me just read the text. Uh, In verse 13, rather, we have the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. And here's, here's the parallel between verses 11 and 12 and 13 and 14. Um, we have, for the grace of God has appeared, verse 11. And in verse 13, we have the appearing of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the personification of God's grace. What happened when the grace of God has appeared? It made salvation available to all, verse 11. Verse 14, at the appearing of Jesus Christ. It is this Jesus Christ who redeems us from all iniquity. The grace of God has appeared, training us or catechizing us to renounce ungodliness and live godly lives. Verse 12. Verse 14, it is Jesus Christ who not only redeems us from all iniquity, but he himself purifies us. He, he makes us into a people who are zealous for good works. God's grace working through us. We don't work that up in ourselves. So as we look at this verse, who redeems us? Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who purifies us, forming in us a zealousness for good works, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who created all things is before all things and holds all things together, Colossians 1, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I I bring that into the formula to ask this. If we can trust Jesus to hold the entirety of the universe together, Adam by Adam, Can we not also trust him to sustain our faith? Can we not also trust him when he says that he has redeemed us from all iniquity? Can we not trust him when he says that he has purified us? Can we not trust him to be both the good shepherd and the good catechizer of our souls? Does our conscience and our fears speak louder than the one who is enthroned 
as king over the universe and holds all things together. The relationship between the gospel and good works is that it is all of grace. And that grace begins in us as the Holy Spirit brings us to salvation through the proclamation of the gospel and continues to work through us throughout the rest of our lives and into the future. Again, this is seen in Titus 3, 1 through 8, where Paul writes, remind the church to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to everyone. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Um, whenever Paul or a, a, a writer in the New Testament starts to bring up a list of things to do or not do, we have to remember that this is all in a context, right? The context of, of the pastoral epistles largely is the, the false teachers. And so he's not just making a list of things that we should be aware of. It was the false teachers in their contentiousness who were speaking evil of others, quarreling, not being gentle, not showing courtesy to all people. And so St. Paul says, teach these things. Remind the congregation of these things. But in doing so, what, is, what does he do? He immediately grounds that in an argument for why Timothy should be able to teach these things. And that, that appears in verse 3, where he says, we ourselves were once foolish. We were like them. You, Timothy, I, Paul, the congregation, all faithful Christians, we're not so different. We're not so different from the false teachers. There has been a change, though. And what is the change that occurred in Paul and Timothy and all faithful Christians. We see that in verses 4 through 8. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God saves us not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That is the difference. Paul, Timothy, Titus, the faithful at 
Crete and Ephesus, the only difference between the false teachers and them, God has saved them, justified him by his grace, and he has made them become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And this is the consistent teaching of Holy Scripture that no one is righteous before God. Therefore, salvation can only come by God's grace and mercy alone. Our faith is a gift from God given through the Holy Spirit who then lives in us, in empowering, enabling us to continue to grow in the life as God meant it to be. It's all of God's grace. When we fail, the Holy Spirit guides us to repentance. He refuses to abandon us. This is the Holy Spirit of God, the same one who sits on the throne and holds all things together. He will not leave us, having already given his Son for us. We'll go through this quickly. The relationship between the gospel and the church, if this is how God saves us and how he brings us into uh, being the people of God, what does that mean? What is the relationship then between the gospel and the church? 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, again, we go back to, I hope to come to you soon but I am writing these instructions to you so that you may know how one ought to behave, having already been saved and now empowered by the Holy Spirit in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the power and bulwark of the truth. Um, I was going to discuss both the pillar and the bulwark of the truth and the church as the household of God. I want to go through this first one quickly because it's the second one that I want to get to. Here, the truth is shorthand for the very gospel we've been talking about and the sound doctrine which conforms to it. The church is the pillar of that truth because it holds up and holds forth that gospel to the unbelieving world. It's what pillars do. They Now, this isn't to say that the church holds up the gospel in a way that God doesn't, but that God uses the church in the world to be the support through the proclamation of the gospel. It's the bulwark of truth because it defends and stewards the gospel through teaching and preaching sound doctrine and rebuking false doctrine and church discipline should it get that far. Um, yeah. So... We'll, We'll move on from that. The household of God. What does it mean that the church is the household of God? This is going to be the prevalent metaphor for the church. Oh, metaphor is the wrong word, as I'll show in a minute. Image of the church throughout the pastoral epistles. The church is God's family. Now, this, this image goes all the way back to the beginning. The people of God is the family of God. Adam is called God's son. 
This familial language is then wound throughout the rest of Scripture. God declares Israel to be the firstborn son when they're enslaved by Pharaoh in Exodus 4. It recalls the Exodus event through the prophet Hosea by saying, Out of Egypt I called my son, Hosea 11. St. Matthew then applies this passage from Hosea to Jesus himself, saying that Jesus is the son that was brought out of Egypt when Mary and Joseph returned after the death of Herod. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record at Jesus' baptism the Father's affirmation saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Later on in his ministry, Jesus is teaching in, um, in or at their, near his hometown, and his mother Mary arrives with his brothers. And when someone tells Jesus that they're here to see him, Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looked around at those who sat around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Mark 3, 32 and 34. God's family is neither biological nor metaphorical. God's family is adoptive. And there is no greater familiar blood or DNA than that which Christ shed on the, church, on the cross for the church. There is no greater notary signature than the seal given to us by the Holy Spirit, our guarantee and down payment of our inheritance. There's no greater birth than that which is linked to our faith and holy baptism. There is no greater court of adoption than the heavenly throne itself. Here again how St. Paul addresses Timothy and Titus. To Timothy, my true son in the faith. To Titus, my loyal child in the faith we share. This is not metaphor. This is a family born out of the shed blood of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the creation of of the church. As Christians, we are part of the greatest family, the strongest family that there is. We are the adopted sons and daughters of God in Christ. Next week, we'll take a look at this adoption as we consider the relationship between the gospel and holy baptism.